Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and if you would please rise as we honor the public reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, as we continue to go through what has been a very trying year in in very many respects, and Lord, even as we have prayed many times that you would use the things that have happened to us and to this country and even the world, that you would use them for the sake of the advancement of your kingdom, Lord, so now we do pray that as we come to instructions for how believers are to live in such times for the sake of the advancement of your kingdom, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would even answer those earlier prayers by building up your church, that we can be a bright light to this world of darkness, that we could be good witnesses for you, even in the midst of suffering, and that in so doing, your kingdom would advance, and that your name would be praised all the more. We ask all this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God often does use the suffering of his people to advance his kingdom. Uh, can be said, or at least some variation of this is said, that the, the seed of the church is often sown with the blood of the martyrs. That very often God does use the death of, of his servants to uh, give very great and bold, courageous witness to his name, even while they suffer, that he often uses that more than times of peace for to advance his kingdom. We have an example of this even in the scriptures, the early church, with the stoning of Stephen in Acts uh, chapter 7. We have uh, people gathering around uh, him, and he is able to uh, refute them with uh, the great wisdom which God gave him, as God had filled Stephen with the Spirit. He gives a long speech, at the end of which uh, the, those who oppose him, uh, the, the unbelieving Jews, decide that he can no longer live, and so they end up stoning Stephen. And that action of stoning Stephen was clearly meant to suppress the truth of the gospel. It was meant to uh, hinder the growth of this fledgling church that was uh, pretty much confined to Jerusalem. And yet, it was through this that all the people of God get scattered to all of the, the neighboring areas, and the church and, and the gospel actually goes forth, and the church does, in fact, grow. And this has been the case all throughout history. All of those who have attempted to squash the gospel— by persecution, have ended up uh, causing it, even indirectly, 
to grow because God blesses the church and blesses his people when they suffer well for his name. And so even as we, we think about this, though, it's it's not something that happens in a sense that's automatic. Stephen um, was, the, God used the stoning of Stephen to grow the church. But notice even in that example in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was an incredibly godly person who gave a very bold and courageous testimony uh, at the end of his life and was willing to stand up for the truth, even if it meant his own death. That is to say, God does use the suffering of the church for the sake of the advancement of his kingdom, but not if the church loses its voice when it suffers. If the church loses its witness as she suffers, then she's really only suffering for her own sins. And God does not use that in the same way to advance his kingdom. And so this is something that we have to to think about as we are in a time of, of extended suffering and for this or that thing. Will we, as a people, be ready, as Peter says here, to give a defense for the reason for the hope that is in us when we suffer? It does matter how you suffer. It does matter the way in which you do it. We've looked at this uh, in a number of different weeks throughout uh, 1 Peter, that Peter is addressing people who are suffering, but he's not just giving them consolation. He wants them to be able to suffer well. Are you ready to give a good testimony, a good reason for the hope that is in you when you suffer? Now, Peter here is continuing his exhortation to Christians to suffer well. And here, in this particular passage, he gives a number of reasons about why Christians are to suffer well. What we're going to see in this particular passage is that uh, you are to sanctify Christ in your sufferings to advance God's kingdom. So that's one thing that does advance God's kingdom. And if you do this, you're blessed. There actually is a blessing. Stephen received an even greater blessing because of his sufferings. He he had a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ standing as he uh, was received to his Savior. He was given a, a greater glimpse of the glory of Christ because of his suffering. So there's a blessing, and it does, in fact, advance the kingdom of God. Now, we'll look at this passage under two headings. The way this passage is set up is there are reasons for sanctifying Christ in our sufferings that sort of bookend the passage. And so we're going to look at the beginning and the end of the passage together, looking at first the reasons why you are to to sanctify Christ in your suffering. That'll be uh, 13 to the beginning of 14, and then the latter part of 16 to 17. And then we're going to look at the actual exhortation, the command to sanctify Christ in your suffering, which comes uh, in the middle of the passage. So again, just two headings here, the reasons to sanctify Christ, and then the command to sanctify Christ. Now, looking then at the reasons to sanctify Christ, looking at particularly the, the first couple of verses uh, of this passage, notice that there is, there's really a twofold argument here that Peter gives as to why you ought to be righteous as you suffer. There's a, a twofold argument. So, um, if if you live a godly life, then you'll have this benefit. And then even if you don't get all of that benefit in that in the small situation where you don't receive the first benefit, you'll receive this additional benefit. So there is a, a twofold reason why you are to live a godly life. And notice the first one, uh, which is interesting in the context of Peter, uh, is that if you live a godly and righteous life, your suffering will actually decrease. You will actually be persecuted less. Now, this, this may seem like a strange thing to say. We know that all throughout the scriptures that it says that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus uh, will be persecuted. We also read uh, Paul saying that it is only through much suffering that we can enter into the kingdom of God. 
And yet here, Peter is actually saying that if you live a godly life, even though it's true that suffering will be a must and there will be some forms of persecution that you must endure, still, even in those situations, godly living will actually decrease your persecution, the suffering that you receive. Uh, In general, people who do wicked things are punished for it. And in general, people who do righteous things are rewarded and they are not punished. And this is something that's true even though the Christian is called to suffer. If you live an ungodly life, you will not be persecuted for your faith, but there is a great chance you will in fact suffer greatly for your ungodliness. And so Peter says, even, even apart from the idea of, of uh, you know, avoiding suffering or whatever, or uh, of uh, undergoing persecution, he says, if you live a godly and righteous life, there will be less of a reason for people to target you. And so, you know, one of the questions that's immediately asked is, you know, how can these two things go together? That persecution is a must, uh, and yet that righteous living will, in some ways, godly living will decrease your persecution or your suffering. Uh, this has actually caused a number of commentators to, to change the sense of verse 13 and to offer a different translation, but I don't think we need to do that. There is actually a, a, one very great example in the Old Testament that shows the, exactly the truth of this, and that is the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph in, 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 uh, at the, the tail end of Genesis. Here is a man who, without question, suffered. And if we ask, why did he suffer? He suffered exactly for his righteousness. The text shows that he was godly in everything that he did. His brothers had no reason to do to him uh, what they did. At the end of the book, you see them repenting and confessing that everything that they did to him was in fact wrong. He goes from bad to bad to bad, it seems, uh, as he's sold by his brothers and is uh, taken into Potiphar's house where he is accused of something that he didn't do, eventually thrown into prison where he's forgotten for two years. So he's this is one who suffers over and over again. And yet, all throughout the text as well, it is his godliness that actually lessens his suffering in each of those situations. When he's in Potiphar's house, it's his godliness that makes it so that Potiphar puts everything under his care. And he actually then, in, in a lot of ways, is blessed even as he's suffering. And then even as he is accused of wrongdoing, one, he's not put to death, perhaps because of, of the godliness that, that Potiphar knew about, about Joseph. He's thrown into prison. And then even in prison, it's his godliness that negates the the punishments and the and the sufferings that he would receive in prison. Throughout the story, his suffering is a must, and yet it is his godly character that leads it to leads us to say that all of those who are going to punish Joseph, in some ways, are encouraged not to because of Joseph's godliness. And the same is true for us today. If you live a godly life, there is not a reason for people to punish you or to cause you suffering, or to cause you harm. They will be uh, even put to shame, as, as Peter will say later, uh, by even their attempts, because they'll see your good behavior, and they'll, they'll understand, really, I, I can't really do anything to this person. This is clearly a good person. And so one of the reasons, then, one of the encouragements that Peter gives to us uh, to, to live a godly life in the midst of suffering is that godliness actually does reduce your suffering. It does reduce your suffering, even as suffering is a must. But he goes on to say that this is the second part. So again, it's a twofold argument. Even if, even if you do continue to suffer, so uh, godly living will decrease your suffering. But then even if you say, well, I still have to suffer. Peter says, even if that is the case, you are still blessed. Notice what he says in verse 14. Even if you do, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. 
even if the, the small situation uh, occurs, the, the, the exception to what I'm saying in verse 13, that there will be no one who will try to cause you, you harm for your godly living, even if there is the occasional exception that happens, even in that case, you are blessed because you are suffering for the sake of righteousness. And suffering for the sake of righteousness carries with it its own blessing. Now, you may ask, how is it that this that this happens? How, how is it that God actually blesses us in the midst of our suffering? Well, there are a number of, of things that can be said in, in terms of uh, the way that this works all throughout the scriptures. Think of uh, what it says even with the Joseph story, if we continue on with that example. It says over and over again that God was with Joseph. One of the things that happens when we suffer for the sake of righteousness is that we 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 come to know the presence of God in a deeper way. We have a a, a deeper sense uh, of uh, God and our relationship to him, and there is a greater intimacy that we have when we suffer for righteousness' sake. And even in the New Testament, this is really amplified, because when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we are suffering in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that even as he suffered— so too we suffer in the same way. He suffered for righteousness' sake. He suffered for the sake of uh, his godliness. And yet, we will then, in some ways, fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 1. And as, as uh, Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 3, there is, in fact, a fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. So, you know, if you, if you think of, of this, if you think of uh, some of the hard times you've been through, the sufferings you've been through, and you think of those who went through it with you, those who went through those difficult times with you and who suffered alongside you, oftentimes in those situations, there is a deep bond that is formed between you and the person who suffers with you. And what what the scriptures teach is that this is the bond that is established when you suffer for righteousness sake with the Lord Jesus Christ, because you are going through exactly what he went through. You are going through exactly what he went through, and there is a bond that is formed. And so, there is a blessing if you should end up needing to suffer for righteousness' sake, which again, Peter counts as something of an exception. Even if you should, you are blessed in that situation. This is why then he ends the passage in verse 17. It is better, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better to, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So you need to, to think about this. In some ways, suffering is a must, one way or the other. You can either suffer for your ungodliness and for wickedness, at which point you are simply receiving the punishment that is due to you, or you can be blessed and suffer as someone who is living a righteous and godly life, which in some ways even carries with it less suffering, less suffering and far greater blessing. And so this is the, the question this morning, brothers and sisters, will you suffer? Will you suffer for the sake of ungodliness or for godliness? As there is this this temptation, this temptation and pressure coming from the outside, you know, if I if I stand up for righteousness here in the situation, it will be difficult for me. Ask yourself this: if I don't stand up, at some point there will be suffering that will come my way because of my unwillingness to stand up for God's truth. And if that happens, I'm going to suffer. Will you suffer? It's not the question is not will you suffer at all. In some sense, that's a given. In this life, there will always be suffering. The unbeliever and the believer will, will suffer. But will you suffer for the sake of righteousness or will you suffer for the sake of unrighteousness? Here Peter is saying it is better. It is better to suffer for godliness than for ungodliness. And notice as well, 
going with, uh, even pursuing that the exception, so to speak, of uh, of the Christian suffering a bit further at the end of verse 16. Notice as well that one of the, the another reason why you are to suffer well for the sake of the gospel is because uh, not only does it in some cases lessen, lessen your suffering, not only does it carry its own blessing, but even more than that, God often and always will vindicate those who suffer for righteousness' sake. This is what it says at the end of verse 16. Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. When, when they see that they are pursuing you without cause, that they are returning your good with evil, at some point God will make it known what is happening, and he will be the one who will personally vindicate you. Now, you, the, one of the questions that we need to ask about this particular text is, what is the timing when that will happen? When, when is it that God actually does vindicate his servants? Is it in this life or, or in the age to come? And really, we can say very often it's both. Uh, very often, very often in this life, God is pleased if you will patiently endure suffering to, to give you an open vindication in this life. And this is a great reason to continue to suffer well for the sake of the gospel. God will uh, put to shame those who, who, who do you evil. If he doesn't, he will without question make it right on the last day. But even as we think about the way in which God often does this in this life, it could very well be, and this is often the, uh, the way in which uh, the gospel does go forward as you know people uh, persecute uh, Christians all throughout the ages, and that yet they see, they see even as they're doing it, that these Christians are really living good lives. They're really righteous and godly people. Very often, it is that that leads them to be put to shame and then to be brought to repentance. Very often, God does use, even as he publicly vindicates his people, he, he uses the shame uh, that gets that unbelievers have because of what they're doing to believers to actually soften their hearts and to realize to, to, to realize the depth of their sins, that they, they are, in fact, not nearly so righteous as they believe themselves to be. And so this is one of the ways in which God does, in fact, advance his kingdom. When he vindicates his people in this life, he will lead others to repentance. And again, for the, for the believer, a greater encouragement is even if this does not happen in this life, we believe in the God who will, at the on the last day, make things right. Uh, one of the things that's said even in our catechism, that one of the, the great blessings that we'll receive from Christ at his resurrection is that every believer will be openly acknowledged and acquitted, vindicated. Be vindicated in the eyes of all. Everyone will know who the righteous are. They are those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we await that public vindication. Now, these are all the reasons that are given. Lesson suffering carries with it a blessing. It's better to do this than to, to, to uh, suffer for ungodliness. And you will be vindicated. You will be vindicated on the last day or perhaps even in this life. Now, this then bookends, as I said, the actual command, the command that's given, which comes in, at the end of verse 14 and all the way through really the beginning of 16. Notice there's really two parts to it here. And all of this is really building on uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. Uh, where basically the, the same uh, the same pattern of exhortation and command is given. There's a slight difference, though, in that uh, here, and this, is, this doesn't come out in the New King James, but uh, in most versions, it's actually to sanctify Christ. We are to sanctify Christ in our hearts. So there's a command not to be afraid. So there's a, a negative aspect, something not to do. You're not to be afraid of them. 
but you are rather to sanctify Christ in your hearts. So there's there's a, a, a dual command, something uh, a prohibition, and then followed by a positive command. So a negative and a positive. Let's look first at the negative. Notice the the command is do not fear them. The end uh, of verse fourteen. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor uh, be troubled. Now here you have a command to sanctify Christ being juxtaposed with a command not to fear them. You could say it's a a, a, a uh, juxtaposition of two different fears. And this is often the way it goes together in the Bible. The command not to fear man is always paired with the command to fear God. And those two really are opposites. If you fear men, you cannot fear God. If you fear God, you cannot fear man. So think of uh, the way this works with the statements of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, do not fear the one who can, uh, after killing the body, do nothing, do nothing else to you, he can do nothing to your soul. Fear the one, rather, who, after killing the body, will throw you, both body and soul, into hell. Or he's, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as well, when he says, uh, not to be those who are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of him before my Father in heaven. So then the question is, which one will you be afraid of? Will you be afraid of man shaming, or will you be afraid of Christ shaming? And it's a question of two different fears. Will you fear man more, or will you fear God more? Think of uh, Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If God is with me, I fear him. I'm, he's on my side. I recognize that. Therefore, I cannot fear man. Same thing happens in Psalm 146, verses 3 to 5, where there's a comparison between those who trust in princes, the, you know, the, the most powerful of men on earth. And he says, you know, those who put their, their trust in princes, they're really doomed to nothing because the princes will die and they'll, they'll come to nothing. But those who trust in God, those who trust in God are those who are blessed. Now, this is something that always happens. This is something that's that's constant. Whenever there is a a temptation to give up the gospel uh, before men, whenever there is suffering for righteousness sake, there is always this question, will we fear God or will we fear man? It's to go hand in hand. Think of the, the passage we just read in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Will they fear Nebuchadnezzar or will they fear God? They showed very clearly, we will fear God, no matter what happens to us. We don't have any reason to answer you in this matter, O king. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, we will not serve your gods. We will not do it because we do not fear you. If you fear man, you cannot fear God. And so what Peter says at the beginning here is do not fear man, but rather, and there always has to be this but rather because you can't not fear man without filling your fear, so to speak, with something else. And this is what, what Peter goes on to say positively at the beginning of verse 15. You must sanctify Christ. Now, as I mentioned, the text is, uh, should say Christ. You are to sanctify Christ. Now, as I mentioned in, in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, which is the passage that's really underlying uh, this particular uh, exhortation that Peter has given, there it does say to sanctify the Lord. Here, though, it's sanctify Christ because in the New Testament, Christ is revealed as the Lord. And the only way that you can truly sanctify God in the New Testament after the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ is to sanctify Christ himself, who is the Lord. Sanctify Christ as the Lord. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to do this? What does it mean to sanctify Christ? Well, it would mean a number of things. One, to recognize his holiness, to recognize his majesty, his power, 
his goodness and to do all of these things, recognizing all these perfections about the Lord Jesus Christ, so as to produce an obedience that cannot be thwarted by the threats of man. That's what it means to sanctify Christ. I recognize all these things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I recognize these things about him, I will give him my obedience no matter what. Unconditional obedience will be rendered to Christ. Uh, One of the great examples of this in church history comes in the early 2nd century with the the death of Polycarp, who, uh, as a very old man, is considered to be, uh, it's actually the the middle of the 2nd century, Uh, he's actually considered to be the last church leader who knew an apostle personally. He knew the apostle John uh, personally. He had sat at his feet, and he's brought before the Roman consul, who, who says, you know, Polycarp, you're an old man, and uh, if you will just simply recant your Christian faith and say away with all these atheists, these Christians who deny all the Roman gods and who s- claim to worship a, s- a so-called invisible God, if you'll just do that, I'll let you go. You're an old man. Have pity on yourself. And the response that Polycarp gives is he, w- with regard to Christ is, for 86 years I have served him. For 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then deny my Lord who bought me? How, how, how can I do it? I've served him. He's been good to me. I love him. I've sanctified Christ in my heart. I'm willing to give a good testimony, a reason for the hope that is in me. And he basically says to the Roman consul, let it be known to you. I will not serve your gods. I will not do it. Do to me whatever you will. And in fact, Polycarp was uh, put to death, but the church even grew. Uh, as uh, he himself uh, was had his life extinguished. And so this is the command. Sanctify Christ in your hearts. Do not fear man, rather sanctify Christ. Now, as Peter continues here, he actually gives us some indication as to what this looks like in more detail. Sanctify the Lord God or Christ in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks, for, asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. Now, we've looked at some, the idea of, of uh, always being ready to give a defense for, and a reason for the hope uh, that is in you. And this is something that um, clearly uh, we've seen, for instance, with Polycarp uh, or others who have suffered. Stephen uh, makes a good confession of his faith. And this is really what you are called to do. It does not mean that you need to be an expert in the scriptures. It doesn't mean that you need to be able to give... Uh, a very um, eloquent and deep theological um, you know, treatise on why this or that thing is right. It can be very simple. Think of Polycarp's answer. I've served him my whole life, and he's been so good to me. What else can I do? It's just a, a very simple thing. I'm just, or even think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're just, we're just not going to do it. We, we believe in God. He has been good to us, and we are here saying we are ready to die for this because of the hope that is in us. We believe, though we die, we'll live. We believe that just as Christ died, so we, and was raised from the dead, so too we will. It, it, it is not so much an eloquence with regard to the scriptures as it is simply a boldness to stand firmly upon the truth of the scriptures. Simple answers. Christ loves me. What else can I do? Am I really going to deny someone who loves me that much? I, I can't. I can't. Even though I'm a weak person, let it be that God would give me strength because it terrifies me to think of uh, of me denying my Lord who has done so much for me. It, are you ready to give a testimony like that before man? Are you ready to suffer well 
and to let your life count. And it may not be that you're put in a situation by the Lord's grace. We There are a lot of protections for Christians in this country. We're uh, very often not put to death uh, for our testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ. But regardless, if, if it's something lesser, something at work, uh, where you know that if you have a bold testimony for Christ, it could maybe cost you your job, it could maybe cost you a position or a promotion or whatever else, will you be willing to say you love the Lord Jesus Christ and will continue to serve him whatever else happens? Will you be willing to endure even that kind of suffering for him? Now, if you can't even do that, it's very unlikely that you'd be willing uh, and able to die for him. Uh, really what we are called to is in a lot of ways less, and we need to make sure that in our lesser callings to suffer for Christ, that we are able to do that faithfully. Now, a couple other things that Peter says about this, even in terms of tone and the way you do it, with meekness and fear, with meekness, uh, you must even give your testimony in a way that's winsome. It's it's not that you are uh, shouting people down and that you are just simply out to prove them wrong. There is a meekness and a humility that is really required for the kingdom of God to advance. Now, one of the things that we have mentioned a number of times uh, is the, 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 the issue of homosexuality. We said over and over again that the church needs to be firm in its belief that homosexuality is wrong, it's a sin, and all of that. But even as we say that, it does not mean that then when you're interacting with someone who holds that and is pressuring you, that you would uh, you know, shout at the person or uh, say things, you know, more strongly than you need to. It's that, you know, you know, I simply believe that the scriptures are right on this. And I'm just simply following that. I believe that, that nature teaches this. And that even more than that, that Christ has taught it. And the great news is, if you turn from the sin, which your conscience tells you is wrong, then you yourself will be saved as well. You'll be saved. You'll be saved from it. All of the negative effects, uh, God will redeem and you will be brought into the kingdom of God. There is there is a meekness and a humility that is required as we stand firmly upon the truth of the scriptures. Think of, uh, this is just wonderfully depicted in Acts 26 when Paul is, is on trial before King Agrippa. And you have this this courtroom scene where uh, all of the, the mightiest of the Roman Empire, not, not Caesar, but all those in that area, the, the, all the local rulers are there, and Paul is in chains before them all. And King Agrippa asked him, you know, will you so quickly get me to become a Christian? And he says, oh, I wish that, Paul responds and says, oh, I wish that everyone in this room would be as I am, except for these chains. Just, there's just a, a humble, meek response to say that I, I really do believe I am blessed in the way that I am. And I simply wish you to have that blessing as well, even without the chains that I have, that Paul says. So we are to do this with meekness. And notice as well with fear. I'm not going to touch on this too much because fear here is referring to the fear of God, uh, which is something that we have dealt with as well. You cannot fear man, but rather fear God. But notice the last thing that's said is having a clear conscience, having a good conscience. And this is key as well. If you if you are trying to sanctify Christ in your hearts and to suffer well for him, and yet you have a secret sin that you are holding on to, Brothers and sisters, even if nobody ever knows about that sin, and even if it doesn't come up in your suffering, you are really unable to suffer well for righteousness' sake, to suffer well for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. This is one of the things that Paul said over and over again about his own ministry. 
listen, I'm doing this with a clear conscience. I'm, I'm not like those peddlers of the word of God who are simply uh, just using these things for their own gain. I stole from churches so that, figuratively speaking, so that I could present the gospel to you free of charge. Everything I am doing is for your sake, and I have a perfectly clear, clear conscience that I am even forgoing my rights for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. And over and over again, he says, I, I'm doing this with a clear conscience. Can you say that you are going through life right now with a clear conscience? That you have a clear conscience with the way that you are living before God? Are there things in your life that you are constantly trying to hide from other people? That you wish desperately that they would not find out? That you are ashamed of before God, but really are unwilling to repent in any meaningful way? Brothers and sisters, it does matter how you suffer. And you must suffer with a clear conscience. And so, uh, as we sum up the whole thing, the whole sum of the matter, uh, we, we can ask, are you suffering in this life? I think very few people in this world would say that in 2020 I am not suffering, that I'm not going through some in some ways things that are difficult. As you even think about that, though, pray that God would allow you to suffer well for the sake of his glory. Do not waste your suffering, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, but let, let suffering produce, have its full effect and produce a righteousness and a godliness in you. Let, let it be that this that the suffering in your life trains you even for godliness and think of this as well as you suffer well for the sake of uh, the glory of god think of all of the things that peter has said the reasons for doing it per, the foremost of, of them being that in your suffering when you suffer for righteousness sake you are brought closer to the lord jesus christ may god grant that we as a church would be willing to suffer in this way that we would even attain to the ultimate goal as as paul said the ultimate goal of the resurrection of the dead, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has attained to it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how blessed be your name, how we can say with Polycarp that you have really uh, been so good to us all of our days. You have done us no wrong, O oh God. We can say it even in the midst of all of our suffering. You have done us no wrong. You have always been good to us. You have not treated us the way our sins have deserved. May it be, O Lord, that we as your people are enabled by your spirit to worship you in a way that brings glory to your name, to live through this life, even in suffering, in, in a way that brings glory to your name and advances your kingdom. Lord, you are worthy of the praise of this whole world. May it be that we are willing to give a good testimony of you before men, that we would not deny you, that we ourselves might not be denied. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.